0: Tonight, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're going to look at the topic that we value marriage. Now, our church values marriage. Um, the Bible, it's very clear what marriage is. That's a man, a woman, one man, one woman for a lifetime, and they're married um, either until death does them part or until Jesus comes back. And those are really the options. That's how, that's how marriage works. It's one man and one woman, and those are biological sexes, genders that God created. There's not other options. There's not other opinions. There's not other outs. It is a man and a woman, and they're made to fit together. They're made to be a relationship together, and that's how it works. And it works for a lifetime, and God created marriage to be like that. Now, God created our lives to be a lot longer than they are, but because of sin, we die sooner than we're supposed to. So that's the only thing that keeps us from being married forever is the fact that we messed it up. But God's plan is still very clear for what marriage should look like, even in a fallen world, even though married people are sinners, even though we mess up, even though we hurt each other, even though we say mean things or get up at 4 and wake the other person up like I did this morning and woke her up, even though sometimes we come to bed late. And by late, I mean 10 (laughs) o'clock, even though she's asleep at 940. So life is... Oh, married life is different than single life for sure. Um, and I know that because now in the last year, I've had a lot of both. I've had now about half of both. And so I've, I've loved married life, but it also comes with a difference. Like it's different than single life and then single life. I'm sure like single life is different as just a single person than when you're dating. And that's different than when you're engaged. And that's different than when you're married. And that's different than now, you know, with the baby on the way. And I'm sure it'll be a lot different (laughs) when a baby is not on the way, but has arrived. And so eagle has landed. Like, I don't know. We'll see. But I do know that marriage is an important Bible topic. It's an important thing to God. And when (laughs) things are important to God, it's important to us. And keep in mind, the best part about marriage is that it's a picture of us and Jesus, Jesus died for us because he loves us. And he gave everything in his life for us so that we can have life. And that's really a picture of what marriage is too. On the earthly side, I pledge my life and I give my life to Skylar and she gives her life to me. And we share a life. We are one one unit now. We are two individuals, yes. But a married couple is supposed to be one. And that's how it should be. And that's, that's what the bride, which is the church, and that's what Christ are. We should be one with him. We have the mind of Christ, and we should think like he does and act like he does and please him because that's our job as Christians. And Paul here is going to shift from the first section of the book kind of into this next section of the book. Okay, So 1 Corinthians, the first section, he's going to deal with some of the splits, the divisions in the church. And we've kind of gone through that, how to deal with those divisions, how to deal with um, even when divisions get so bad that you even go to law or go to court and even sue each other. What does that look like? Glorify God in your body. That's the last section that we dealt with last week. And now we're going to look at glorify God in your marriage. And as a church, we together need to value marriage very, very heavily. And our key takeaway tonight is to worship God Through the marital condition, he gifts you. Gifts you. Now, this is a longer chapter. It's got 40 verses in it. And it's got five major divisions in it. Okay, so we're going to move through this tonight. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time with extra illustrations or commentations. I'm just going to explain what the Bible says. We're going to look at it. We're going to grab a principle from it. You're going to write in the blanks, and then we're going to move on. Okay? Because marriage is important, and so is time. So, Amen. So, verse 1 through 7. Let's read these verses. It says this, Now concerning the things about which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, or because of that temptation, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to the wife due affection, and likewise the wife to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. Then come together again so that Satan does not tempt you for lack of self-control. I speak this as a concession and not as a command. For I would, or I wish, I will, that all men were even as I myself. But every man has his proper gift from God. Watch that; that's the key here. Every man has his proper gift from God. After or one after this manner, so one person has a gift like this, and um, and another after that. And the idea here is there's there's really five types of marital conditions, and the first one that we see here is marriage. So he kind of hits. <coughs> hits it plainly on the head, just straight up, we're going to start with the question that you asked me. Now, we don't know exactly what the question is that Corinth sent a letter to Paul to ask, but we do know that one of the two questions specifically that the Corinthian church asked Paul, the first one has to deal something with marriage. And we're going to look at this next question next week. But the first question is something about marriage. And Although we don't know the question, we do know the answer. And that's really the valuable part for us because we do know what to do as Christians. Now, before we go any further, we need to understand some things about why Paul would say what he's saying. Because if you look at it, he says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, that's a good principle. I think unmarried people probably shouldn't be touching all over other unmarried people or married people shouldn't be touching other people like that's that's just a basic human principle. So it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But in the context it seems almost like he's saying don't don't even marry. Honestly, if you can serve God without <coughs> being married, then at the end of this in verse 7 he says I would or I wish that you guys were like me, unmarried. And that seems a little bit strange. Like why would why would Paul say that after all the other places that he talks about marriage, he calls it a gift from God. He he compares it to the marriage of the Lamb being Jesus in the church. He compares, uh, you know, he, he gives instructions for married couples and for women, and for husbands and children. Why would he talk about marriage in this way in just this passage? Why does this seem to contradict the rest of the Bible? Well, because if you remember, Corinth was a bad place to live. If you also remember, Bad Places to Live did not like Christianity at that point. And it was not one time. It was more, many times that Paul himself was persecuted and beaten up for being a Christian. And with the new emperor named Nero coming to power, he knew that this was just going to intensify. In fact, we know that it did historically because the, the Christians split. They ran away and they spread across the world. And The persecution is difficult to endure when you have a family. Um, Even Jesus said that, woe unto the person who gives suck or who has a, a, a nursing baby in the day of affliction. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. It's not don't marry. Paul doesn't think marriage is a bad thing. In fact, he thinks it's a good thing. In fact, I heard this recently, and the more that I looked at it, the more I see the validity of the argument. A lot of people actually think that Paul wasn't just single. He was actually a widower. It seems that Paul would have had a wife and she died. And then, because I don't know, when you read about his stuff, he knows a little bit too much about marriage to be somebody who never was married. He also, his station as a Pharisee meant that he probably would have been married because it's very, very difficult to get to the high offices of, of the Pharisaical world without being married. So it seems like he probably was married and he lost his wife, which is sad. And maybe that was the thorn in the flesh that we just don't ever talk about. I don't know. But what I do know is that he does wish that these people who are being persecuted didn't have to deal with the temptations, didn't have to deal with the urges, but instead could just be like he was, have the, the contentedness that God gave to him, knowing that He doesn't have a wife. That was okay with Paul, but it's not okay for everybody. And so for those of you who want to get married, those of you who are married, go for it, Paul says. You haven't sinned. And in fact, he says, you know, it's better for you to, for the sake of sin, just get married. That way you can have your sexual desires and your needs met for a man or for a woman. Have that met and solve the problem. That's okay. Um, so that's the historical context. That's why he would be talking about that. But he also mentions that marriage does come with obligations. He mentions that man and woman, husband and wife, should not defraud one another for a time. That means don't rob one another. And what that means is of your obligation, not just your privilege. It's, not, um, it's your obligation in marriage to fulfill each other's sexual needs and desires. Now there's an element of marriage that includes your, your emotional needs and your mental and like just making sure the other person's healthy and content and whatever, you know, solving problems and things like that. That's part of any relationship. And there's a lot of biblical information about that. But what Paul is talking about here is he says, let the husband render to the wife, do affection and the wife back to the husband. And then he goes specifically just in case affection was not clear enough it's not just don't love your wife and wife love your husband. He says after that that the husband doesn't have rule over his own body. It's not his body anymore. The wife doesn't have rule over her body. It's not her body anymore. She is for him and he is for her. And the the sexual side of marriage is for the other person. And so just on the backside of that, a lot of times there's there's – um, in many marriages, there is a, a hot and a cold partner, oftentimes, and sometimes that's seasonal, sometimes it changes, sometimes it rotates. It tends to be that when men are younger, in their 20s and 30s, they tend to have a higher sex drive than women, and then they tend to, just, just data backing it up, they tend to decrease in that as they get older. Women are actually the opposite. It tends to be that the younger they are, the lower the sex drive, and then as they get older, the higher it goes. That's just just data-driven. Um, heard that from a scientist. So that's, that's why Paul would have to say this, because if everybody always wanted their husband or their wife, then it wouldn't be an issue. But sometimes it is, and you have to deal with that biblically. So God solves the problem. Whenever you're married, you are for the other person. And that's not just emotionally. That's not just to be there for them. That's also to fulfill their physical needs, their emotional needs, and everything else that comes along with marriage. So if you're in marriage, if you're in a world of persecution, then it might be easier not to get married and you might be able to escape faster. But since we don't live there, we live in America where you are free and religion is okay, then get married and enjoy it and love life. And I hope that each of you finds the person that you need. Now, our key takeaway from this is to remain faithful after Christ's example. Remain faithful after Christ's example. Now let's read verses 8 and 9. He says, I say to the unmarried and widows that it is good for them if they live even as I am. Remember? He actually compares himself to the widows. So he would probably really fit into that widower category. He says in verse 9, but if they cannot restrain themselves, that means if they, if they really do need a partner, let them marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If, if you need to be married to somebody, then you need to be married to somebody. If you need sexual fulfillment, then you need sexual fulfillment. If you need that person there with you, then you need that person there with you. And the fact is, don't burn. Go marry. Go find somebody that you love. And that's perfectly okay. That's perfectly biblical. Um, now, again, persecution is going to make marriage harder. And that's why he kind of starts with that first thing. I say to the unmarried in windows, he kind of throws this out to you guys there at Corinth in the present circumstances with the persecution going on. It'd probably be easier for you, probably be better for you just to be like I am for a time. Be celibate, stay to yourself, don't marry, stay away from it. it it's just going to make it easier if you have to flee. But again, we don't live there. We live in America. So that's where the verse nine comes in. But if they can't restrain themselves, let them marry. Or it's better for them to marry than to burn with passion. And just to keep this in mind, the principle here, although it's written to widows and to unmarried people, the principle here is that marriage is better than sin, no matter the circumstances. Marriage is better than sin. And doing things God's way is always better than doing things a counterfeit or fake. And our takeaway from this, the practical step, if you fit into this category, is to marry if God gives you a spouse. Marry if God gives you a spouse. Pretty straightforward. Anything too complex so far? Number two is unmarried or widows. Sorry. Unmarried. So number one, the first marital condition is you're married. The second marital condition he deals with is either you're unmarried or you're a widow. The third that he deals with in verses 10 and 11 is separated, separated. Look at verses 10, 11. He says, now to the married, I command, not I, but the Lord, do not let the wife depart from her husband. Okay, so that means if they're fighting, Don't let her just run away. But if she departs, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. So, Scott, don't run away. And do not let the husband divorce his wife. So, here's how, okay, keep in mind, there is also a, a context around this, a societal context. In that time, women could not divorce men, but men could divorce women and specifically in the Jewish context, although that's not who these guys were, but the society was kind of similar, they they learned that they could just divorce for any reason. In Israel, literally, a man could divorce his wife for burning breakfast. For real. Yeah. And then, on top of this, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if it went the other way, I would be toast. No pun intended. Um. So on the other hand, though, even the religious rulers would take this and they would, they would for real like prostitute themselves. They would go in and they'd be these traveling rabbis and they would go marry somebody for the time that they lived in that town and then divorce her because, well, I don't like her anymore. And so they would get free sex everywhere they went. That's not cool. And that's the, li- that's the world. That was the religious world that these people lived in. And then add to that, in in Corinth, there was a lot of um, prostitution. That was a very common thing. And on top of that, it was a form of worship as well. So this was not a good place to live. This was not a sexually pure place to live. And to say to a, a person, when you leave your husband or your wife not to divorce them, not even to sleep around while you're away from them, that would be an unheard of thing for these Corinthians. But that's exactly what Paul says. He says, if if you have a problem in a marriage, the solution isn't to run away. It's never just to walk away. It's never to ignore it. It's never not to talk about it. It's always to solve the problem. Now, does that mean that you can that you shouldn't take some time and cool off before you start yelling, that's probably a wise thing to do. There's also biblical principles about tact and how to deal with a disagreement. But the solution is not to quit. The The solution is to persist. And then if you just think back to the example of Christ, Jesus doesn't quit loving you whenever you mess up. He doesn't run away from you and ignore. So why would we do that in marriage as Christians who claim to be the bride of Christ? We ought to love our our husbands and our wives. We ought to love our spouses. And and before we're married, the girlfriends or boyfriends or fiancés or whatever that we have, we love those people. And love never fails. It doesn't give up. Love persists. (coughs) And because it persists, we love in marriage continually. So when you have an issue, don't just separate. Okay, but what happens when you do separate? Well, then you don't divorce. Because sometimes separation in certain instances actually makes sense. For instance, an abusive husband. Should the wife just stay there and live in the house? Probably not. That's why. That's not smart. But should she just divorce him because she doesn't like what he's doing? No. And in that sense, he answers the question. Verse 11, but if she departs, let her remain unmarried. So that means... Don't go out and go find another husband. Don't leave him. But the better option is, the second part, or be reconciled to your husband. And that's kind of our principle. If you're separated, it's not divorce. The step before divorce. The principle is use separation to work at reconciliation. Use separation to work at reconciliation. He's then going to speak to the next natural thought, the divorced person. Number four, divorced. Now, we just talked about Christ's image as the husband of the church. And if we're the bride of Christ, then we know that Jesus loves us forever. He never leaves us or forsakes us. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and he loves us more than anyone else ever could. And because of that, his love never fails. Which means that he doesn't break his marriage. He covenanted with us at Calvary. I love you forever. And with his blood, he wrote that covenant. He doesn't break it. But the fact is, people aren't Jesus. The fact is, people aren't perfect. And divorce happens. Is it right? No but does it happen? Yes. So Paul necessarily deals with it. He says in verse 12 through 16, let's read those. We'll just kind of break it down as we go. To the rest I speak, not the Lord. Now, what does this mean? Before you go on, that might be confusing, and it might even be what seems like a red flag. In fact, he said in verse 10 the same thing. It's not that that Paul is speaking or God is speaking through him. It's not like this is inspired or this is my opinion. That's not what that means. It means Jesus, when he was back here on earth, talked about some of these things. And so these are the things that he said. Other than that, here are some things that I'm adding, some things that I'm adding to the body of knowledge as Christians that we need to keep in mind. So this is one of the things that Jesus did not directly cover that Paul is now going to cover again through the inspiration of the Spirit. Verse 12 through 16, to the rest, I speak not the Lord. If any brother has an unbelieving wife who consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. So the man gets married, he has a wife, he comes home, he's changed. That puts strain on a relationship. I guarantee you, if one of us wasn't saved, that that makes a difference. In fact, even though we are saved, it's easy for you to become contentious with someone who's not filled with the Spirit when you are. How much more when they don't even know God? So, of course, that's going to cause some strain. So, if she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, and if a woman has an unbelieving husband who consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Same thing, equal. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. Now, does that mean that they're saved by you? My parents are saved, so I'm saved. That's not what that means. But it does mean that God has a little bit of extra grace for some people in that relationship. I think people who come from broken homes, people who've experienced broken homes, can tell that God works in different ways than just when they weren't saved. I think God is a gracious God. I think he knows that even if that person never comes to know Jesus, there is one of my children in that home. And I'm going to protect that home. And I'm going to work in some ways that are just because I love you. I think a heavenly father is better than no father. I'm glad that that he does that. And he fills in that spot sometimes. That's what it means. They're sanctified. But verse 15, he kind of changes this. But if the unbeliever departs, let that one depart. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. What does that, those first two sentences mean? First off, if the unbeliever is going to depart from the marriage, if they want a divorce, they don't like it anymore, they're done. Let them. You're not there to fight them, you're not there to push them. Let them do their thing. Because the minute that you start acting on their terms is the minute that you're not acting in the spirit. And we can't do that. So you get married. You find out that person's not a Christian, which hopefully it would be finding out, not choosing before, because that's just dumb, as Paul's going to outline in chapter 9. Uh, that's just unequally yoked, and, and Christians shouldn't do that. But you find out they're not a Christian, or you become a Christian, and they're, they remain unsaved. They want to get out of here. Let them go. But then he says, the second sentence, a brother or a sister is not bound in such cases. Well, what are they bound to? If you go to the end, we're going to talk about this in just a minute. But in verses 38 through 40, it talks about the law of a wife. Um, look in that verse 38. Or verse 39. The wife is bound by law so long as her husband lives. The same word. She's bound to her husband if he's alive. And the only life that the husband, the unbelieving husband has, in, in back to our other passage that we were just in, is the life that God graciously gives. It's kind of that sanctification. It's not that he's saved, but we're going to pretend, since you're in this marriage. And do keep in mind this, by the way. God views marriage so highly that he even respects it when there's unbelievers involved. That should say something to us about how we view marriage too. But he says, if that person wants to depart, don't push them away. Don't keep them. But you are also free. That means is if you're a believer, go marry again if you want. You're not bound to that person who is spiritually dead because to you, they've died. That means they can go remarry. Now, of course, this would be under the pretext that, of course, they're going to marry within the body of Christ. They're going to marry another Christian. That's a smart move, not a dumb move. That's the only move for a Christian. So that's what that means. Um, and then he finishes this up and he kind of uses the logic. He just asks the question in verse 16, for how do you know a wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know a husband, whether you will save your wife? I guess, The thought here is if you try to keep them in the marriage because you view marriage the way that God views it, then naturally you're going to want to fight against them trying to get the divorce. You're going to fight against them pushing you out. And although that seems at first like a valiant, chivalrous thing to do, do you know that you're going to lead them to Jesus or are you just going to make their life miserable? Because keep in mind, this is the only heaven that they ever get either. Might as well let them go down the path they want. In Paul's words deliver them to Satan. Let them have their way. They've they've chosen their course, so let them take it. But you are free, and you are free indeed. So go find somebody else who's also free and live a life eternally. Live a life that loves and live a life that is a reflection of God, not man. Okay, so that's number four, divorced. Um, And the principle here is divorce frees the Christian widow, that's your quote, to remarry within the body of Christ. And the entire undertone throughout the whole passage so far has been the comparison of Jesus loving the church. And that's where we get number five. The fifth type of marital condition that God gifts us is one that we all have, no matter your, your human marital status. You're a Christian. That's your blank Christian. In verses 17 through 24, Paul basically says that God has you where he wants you. So look at those verses. He says, But as God has given to every man and as the Lord has called every man, so let him walk. This I command in all churches. Is a man called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Is is any man called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision or those outward signs are nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God is everything. Verse 20, let each man remain in the same condition in which he was called. Were you called while a servant? Do not worry about it. Don't, don't think about it. But if you may become free, do so. So like if you can level up your life, go for it. But it's not your main cause in life. And that that's what I think, pause here. That's what I think in our relationships sometimes we try to do as Christians. If I could go back and tell my, younger self something about dating, I would tell him this passage. And I would make him sit there until he finally got it. That your your lot in life is not to find a wife. It is to find Jesus and to find him more and more every day. Because when I finally got that through my thick skull, I found a wife. And when she got it through her thick skull, she found me, which <laughs> is the best gift. So if we would just focus on what Jesus has for us, don't you think that he's got a better plan than you do? Because I guarantee you, all of my dating plans before her were not the best thing for me. That's why they didn't work out. And I'm glad that they didn't because I got the person who is perfect for me. And now I have little Harper who's perfect for us. And I love that so much, but it's only because I was where God wanted me to be. The state where I was called was the state that I was okay, Finally. After 21 years of life, that was finally the state that I was okay with being in. And that's how God works. If you want more, do the best with what you have. And don't do it so that you can get more. Do it so that you can please Him. Because even if you never get more, even if you never get married, even if you never find somebody, that's not the point. Even if you stay the lowest of the lowest servant for the rest of your life, I'd rather be a servant of the high king and a servant here on earth than disappoint him and be a king on earth. We just shift our focus, get our eyes back on the prize. We will do what we need to do. Keep going. He says in verse 22, then he gives the, the cause, kind of what I just said. For he who is called in the Lord while a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's servant. And then verse 23, these are great verses. You are bought with a price. Do not be the servants of men. That means, by the way, in the relationship context, you, wanna, you date somebody who doesn't honor Jesus the way that you should. You're not a servant of that person. If you're even married and that person doesn't want to go where God has for you to go, you're not a servant of that person. I'm not saying that you shouldn't handle it the right way, but I am saying that at the end of the day, you answer to him, not him. You answer to him, not her. Brothers, verse 24, let every man in whatever condition he is called remain there, but watch this, with God. Don't you think God can meet you where you are? What if we stopped trying to leave where we are and started trying to meet with God? I think our lives would be a little bit better, at least more satisfied. Focus on where God God has you because he has you where he wants you. The next next few verses, he kind of makes this point. Focus on Christ no matter your marital gift. So focus on Christ whether you're married, you're not, you're single, divorced, widow, widower, wherever you are, focus on Christ no matter where you are. Verses 25 through 35, let's read those. Now concerning virgins, that means unmarried young women, I have no command from the Lord. Yet I will give my judgment as one who has obtained mercy from the Lord to be faithful. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. That's where it is. Okay, If you were waiting for that, that's where it is in the text. The persecution they were suffering, that's what he's talking about. I suppose, therefore, that it's good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. So don't seek a wife because your life is miserable right now. Verse 27, though, he flips it. Are you committed to a wife? Do not seek to be uncommitted. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. I just wonder, what did they ask him to get that kind of an answer? Like, can I please divorce my wife, Paul? (laughs) Like, what kind of nincompoopery is happening? if If you're married, don't try to be unmarried, stupid head. All right, verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, They will have trouble in this life, but I would spare you that. He says, I'm not going to go into all that. (laughs) And that's yet another proof, I think, of the reason that he is married, because married people realize that there is also difficulty in life when you get married. It's not all, all peaches and roses. It's mostly peaches and roses for me at least, and definitely for her. But it's not all. Verse 29, but this I say, brothers, the time is short. It remains that those who have wives should be as though they had none. What does that mean? What, are you supposed to just ignore your wife? What if we not ignore our wife, but focus on Jesus? Verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep. So if you're sad, it's not about your emotions. It's about your servitude to Christ. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. You're excited about something. It's probably going to pass away. It's going to die. The money that you made, the raise that you got, the 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 higher level of life, the new car, whatever, it's all going to disappear someday. So don't rejoice because you've got a kingdom to serve. Those who buy as though they possess nothing and those who use this world as though they did not make full use of it for the form of this world is passing away. But I prefer that you have no concern. He who's unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares for the things of the Lord, how she may be holy in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but for what is proper, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Okay. Last night, I know it was a humorous example. Um, and If you missed this story, um, I went to bed late. Okay, She went to bed really early at like nine o'clock and I went to go take a shower and then I got out and I worked for a little while and then I came to bed. Now I was working on church stuff. So I'm like trying to serve Jesus. Like it's my job to do. Like I'm, I was serving Jesus and she wanted me to be in bed to play with her hair. There is, there is a difference being single and being married because had I, when i lived in my parents' house stayed up late to work on my jesus work no one was asking me to play with her hair no one wanted me to be in bed by 9:40 as an adult male I bet Dave. <laughs> <I bet Dave>. <laughs> <laughs> there's a difference in being married and being unmarried it's not a bad difference it's just different and since i'm speaking to predominantly single people at the time if that changes where you are right now will not be the same the amount of time that you have to focus on you is different there's so as a male as a man like you're trying to work on yourself you're trying to work on your business or your aspect of business your your skills you're trying to work on your social life you're trying to work on your spiritual life hopefully But then you're also trying to look out for the lives of everybody else that you care about. And that's it's an even bigger task when you're married now because there's a whole person that you have to look out for. It's not just the people that you see at work or the person that you talk to over the phone. Now it's someone that you live with because everything that affects her somehow affects you. Sometimes that's cool. Sometimes it's not cool. But being married is different than being single. It's not a bad thing, it's just different. And Paul raises that point. He says, "Listen, it's not a, I'm not saying this to discourage you. If you want to get married, then get married. Just know, you'd be a really dumb person if you didn't think if you if you thought that it was going to be the same. Okay, you're just stupid if you genuinely believe that being married, you're going to be able to serve in church the exact same way. Listen, a couple years ago, staying after work to work on something for our church or to work on a lesson or to build a PowerPoint or something, didn't think twice about it. It's a very normal thing for me to stay. I'd teach through the day and I'd work in the afternoons, come home five, six, chill at home, go to the gym in between, come back after the sunset, cook some ramen with a little boiling kettle pot, like a good poor broke kid. Now, like there's a responsibility. Laundry has got to be done somehow. House has to be cleaned somehow. Um, the food's got to be cooked, like the dishes need to be clean, not that they ever are at our place, but <laughs> if anyone knows how to fix a dishwasher, please tell me, I'm begging. <laughs> yes, but my point is, married life is different than single life. Now, you can attest to this, it's just, huh? married life is different than single life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there is a difference. And as a Christian, you're throwing me off. I was like, "Is it all a lie?" <laughs> Nicholas, we got something to tell you. But on the spiritual side too, there's a difference. And now it's not just looking out for yourself; it's also looking out for your family. And that's got kind of its pros because this week um, I was in the middle of teaching a Bible class, and something hit me like it would never have hit me before because I've never been here before. I realized, okay, the amount of space that we've explored in all of the world, the whole universe, compared the whole universe to the oceans of of Earth, okay? How much have we looked for? How much have we sifted through and explored? Go to the ocean. Let me tell you how much. Take a 12-ounce glass and scoop up some water. This is how much we know of space compared to all of the oceans. That's so big. In every nebula, every star, every planet, every particle of space dust, all the way down to the petals of a tulip. All of that was created because God wanted fellowship He wanted to walk with her. He wanted to talk with her. And before that all began, he already started a process of saving her because he knew that she'd mess up someday. And then I was thinking, too, what about, like, me as a dad? How many good dads are in the Bible? Name one. I dare you. There's, like, no good dads, okay? Let's start with Abraham. Abraham. Well, he started off his fatherhood with a, a whore, with his wife's like servant. Okay, So that's not the dad of the year award. Let's talk about Moses. His kids became apostate. Let's talk about um, David. His kid slept with his wives on the mountaintop just to prove that he was a bigger man than his dad. So I don't think David won the dad of the year award. How about Solomon? He grew up a kid, Rehoboam, who ended up splitting the entire nation. So I don't feel like he taught him much. Let's talk about any of the other people. Like, I don't see good examples of dads throughout the Bible left and right. I know that there are some, but I don't see them everywhere. And the main people that we would hope to see that from, we don't. And so what that taught me was actually a more important lesson than finding a good dad in the Bible. Because if they, whom God used to write scripture, Messed up that bad means that I'm not going to be a perfect dad. It means that my chances of that are going to be zero. It means that I'm going to raise a little hooligan. She's already starting. But that also tells me an even more important lesson Harper has a Heavenly Father who loves her, who is a perfect. And that just filled my heart when I was teaching the other day in a way that I wouldn't have known. Because married life, father life, is different than single life. And when you grab that thought, then you realize that marriage is really about being married to Jesus more than it is about being married to your spouse. No matter where you are, it's not about the person, it's about His or her Savior. The next two verses, let's go. Next three verses. The Christian view of marriage provides for parental decision. Now, these are actually touchy verses. If you read it, you're going to think immediately, well, that doesn't go with what we believe about marriage and dating today. He says, verse 36, if a man thinks that he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, so to his either... His daughter, who is unmarried, or to his fiancée. The Bible doesn't specify. Now, how they would have taken it, I don't know. So we'll just take it as both. So if a father feels like he's behaving improperly towards his daughter by not marrying her off, then if she's past the flower of her youth, which means that she's past just that childhood stage, she's ready to start dating and ready to start Suiting people. And if she's okay, if she's past the flower of her youth and passions so require, that means that she has a say in this. She's got thoughts and feelings too. Let him do what he will. Let him take into account what she is saying. Let him listen to her and then let him choose. And that's a little bit different than today's society, isn't it? Because today says if the girl wants to marry, Dad, you're a great suggestion. Asking the father's permission is cool and proper and whatever. But she's the one who gets to say. But there's also the fact that the Bible says, let him do what he will. There is a responsibility to dads to do what is right. And that responsibility is to all dads because it doesn't specify if that's a brother or if that's not a saved person. And then on the flip side, there's the other side too, where if you're the fiance of somebody and she just wants to get married and you've been stringing her along for forever, it's time. Just pull the plug. Either tell her you're going to marry her or get done with it, but stop stringing her along because it's an emotional turmoil that she does not deserve. God didn't create her and save her so she can live every day wondering whether a man loves her or not. That's not how God designed this. Nevertheless, verse 37, he who stands steadfast in his heart without necessity and has power over his own will and has so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin does well. That means if this is a father and he just, listen, you're not there. This isn't the guy. There's a spiritual reason why you should not marry him. Listen to me. I don't give my blessing. That is within a father's rights to do. And it's within the daughter's rights to listen. And her responsibility, biblically now, because we just saw it. If this, on the other hand, is a fiance, and he says, listen, now's not the time. We don't need to. We don't need to get married. And I don't feel like God is leading us towards that. It's his responsibility to do that and to know what God wants for him and his future wife. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well. But he who gives her not in marriage does better. Remember, because there's a context here. There's persecution. So if you want to save your daughter a little bit of heartache and make it easier for her to escape alive, if you want to make your son-in-law, or if you want to escape yourself, then marriage is probably not the time for now. But since we live in America, we don't have that problem. So if you want to get married, go for it. But then the last principle is the Christian view of marriage provides for the father's marital law. I'm sorry, that's not what I meant to read. I read the wrong line. There's two perspectives. The father or fiance, we talked about that. There's two decisions, to marry or not to marry. And there's two provisions, the giver and the given. Now, I didn't put those in your notes. That last one is the important one. The giver of the daughter or the giver of the marriage, that means that he's the one responsible for the marriage. But the given, the daughter, the girl, she is the one who also has an aspect of this, and she gets a say in it. So I don't believe biblically a woman should have to be married against her will. I don't think that's true, and I don't think today that like arranged marriages are really a good thing. I don't, I don't see any validity for that. Um, so anyway, if you watch the baits, then don't try to hook up your kid with one of the baits. Okay, there you go, problem solved. All right, last one. The Christian view of marriage provides for nature's marital law, verse thirty-nine and forty. Says this in verse thirty-nine. As we read earlier, the wife, okay, the wife is bound by the law as long as the husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty being to be married to whom she will. So that it switches here. The first time, get permission. The first time, man goes to the father and asks permission. The first time he gives her away. The second time, I've already been married. I'm my own woman. I'm grown an adult. I can make my own decisions. So marry whoever you want. But only in the Lord. Make sure they're a Christian first. Then verse 39. But in my judgment, she's happier if she so if she so remains as she is. And I think I have the Spirit of God. There's a the law of the wife and the law of the widow. The law of the wife says, You're married to your husband until he dies, or until you die. The law of the widow is you can marry your husband if you so choose. All of these come back to this principle. And here's your blank. Be where God has you and do what God wills for you. Be where God has you and do what God wills for you. When we get our focus back on our Christianity instead of just on our dating life, just on our, our spiritual like soulmate kind of seeking, endeavor, whatever, then we get our eyes on the right thing. And our goal should be as Christians to worship God through everything that we do in our, our physical relationship, in our sexual relationship, in our emotional and spiritual bond that God engrafts into the husband and wife, but most importantly, into all of those things with our Savior, our everlasting husband, Christ. If we do that, we'll get everything else right, I promise. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight.